Hello and welcome to the Maple Lion Podcast. My name is Sam and I'm joined as always by my good friend Matt. How are you doing today, pal? I'm good, buddy. How are you? Yeah, I'm very well. Um, the sun has finally come out in Manchester, so I'm happy. <laughs> today we are joined by the English punk and folk singer-songwriter Frank Turner, who is here. Hello. Hello. <laughs> who is here today <laughs> to speak about his music career to date and also his latest releases. This is the Maple Lion Podcast. So hello, Frank. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. It's a real honour for us. Thanks for having us. It's nice to chat to you um, virtually, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I wish we could do this in person, but... I, know, I wish I could do pretty much anything in person. Right now. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, uh, yeah. uh, amen to that. Um, so, so, Frank, just to, to get us started on, on the podcast, we do this with everyone that we speak to. I want to find out a little bit about your journey. So how did you sure. get started in music? Uh, where did it all begin for you? Um, I fell in love with rock and roll through the medium of Iron Maiden. I happen to be wearing an Iron Maiden t-shirt today, which is very on-brand. Um, uh, I, I sort of stumbled across their music as a kid, and I, I'd never really paid any attention to rock music before, and, and they blew me away. And the first thing I wanted to do was get involved, so I got the Argos starter pack for Christmas, the following Christmas, you know, where you get the black and white Strat copy and a little amp and everything for about eight quid. Um, and uh, I remember it said, comes with a strap and a lead, and it did. Um, and, uh, you know, started doing that kind of thing. Um, Nirvana were a big staging post for me because I could actually play their songs um, uh, and sort of form bands with friends when I was a kid. Um, by the time I was about 16, I was in a band called Knee Jerk um, and we started touring. I did my first tour when I was 16 years old. Um, and then we were sort of part of the underground hardcore scene in London specifically and the UK more broadly in the late 90s. Um, this is a very whistle-stop version of all this, by the way. Um, and then, uh, then uh, Nijet broke up and I joined a band uh, with the drummer from Nijet called Million Dead. Um, and Million Dead sort of, you know, got a record deal and, and could sell tickets, or at least a few, in various bits of the UK. Um, and we released two albums properly and toured for about four and a half years. Um, and then that came to an end and I got an acoustic guitar and started doing what I do now um, and then haven't stopped. Okay, so you mentioned Million Dead there, which mm. brings us on to the second point. Um, and I, I own the first Million Dead album, mm. and it's a very, very raw, you know, punk, bordering on like heavy metal kind of sound. Um, and then you changed and you went to solo, and you, yeah. the sound completely changed. There was still like that punky element to your music, but yeah. there's that nice acoustic folk and people say you've invented like a new genre called folk punk <laughs> well, I was the one who invented it but it's very kind of people to say that um i guess the thing like i would i've been in by the time million dead broke up i've been playing in and listening to pretty much exclusively hardcore punk for like nearly eight years and i was just kind of getting a bit bored of it personally and i'd also you know my music taste expanded like as i said got into Iron maiden and then nirvana and i was really into punk and hardcore and metal and i sort of i was in the middle of in my early 20s of discovering you know bob dylan and bruce springsteen and country music and stuff for the first time and, and i was really taken by it and then the other thing was that um million dead broke up because we all fell out with each other um and 
um, I sort of, I've, at the time, I felt very let down by the people. I, I'm old enough now to look back and realize I was probably as guilty as anybody else. But at the time, I felt quite burned. And I was really attracted to the idea of being a lone operator. Do you know what I mean? Not having to depend on anybody else to write and release and tour and record music. So um, the idea of just picking up a guitar, there's something timeless about that sort of troubadour paradigm, you know what I mean? And, and in a way it felt this, I mean, I know this is a charged word to use, but it felt quite punk in the sense that it was exactly not what I was supposed to do. Um, and whilst there were other people who, from punk bands who made acoustic and country and folk records before I did, um, it definitely was a much less well-trod path back in 2005, six kind of thing. I definitely remember telling some people, some of my friends, and indeed some people million that have worked within the industry that I was going to make like a, a folk record. And I got laughed out of the room quite literally on more than one occasion. And um, it's a funny thing because these days, a lot of people think that I kind of changed my stylistic approach because I was interested in being more successful, which I have been. Um, and it doesn't really matter, but just on a personal level, I'm quite defensive of the fact that's not true that it would have been a lot easier for me to go and join another hardcore band and I would have got signed immediately and you know and and I would have kept some of the audience from Million Dead more immediately and I just decided to do what felt like the right thing to do to me on an artistic level and and in a way I find it quite difficult to explain my motives beyond that but that's quite that's kind of cool do you know what I mean it was just pure kind of art it was like this is the sound I have inside me and it's got to come out yeah, it's a great it's a great sound like i i have my cd shelf right in front of me and i think i have nearly everything on it that you've done nice. um and so your first your first release was an ep called campfire punk um which was followed by your debut album which is sleep is for the week yes um so how did uh how did the release go uh around that how how was your first album and ep perceived um, well, so the, the EP was interesting. Um, uh, I, I sort of basically did, there was no real kind of stoppage time between the two musical projects because many of them we sort of agreed to break up, um, but still do a tour that we had booked as a farewell tour. So I had a couple of months to sort of think about what I was going to do next and decided to try out touring these acoustic songs, which I'd already done a couple of like, you know, folk nights with friends of mine, open mic nights and stuff. There was a bar in London called Nambuka that I was hanging out at and sort of living at at the time um, that had a lot of that kind of music going on. Um, so I started booking solo shows almost like before the band broke up for after that last tour. So I just kind of hit the ground running. And after about six months of that, the guys from Extra Mile Recordings who'd put out the second million dead record, um, uh, they co-released the first one and just put out the second one. They got in touch and said, this is interesting. Would you like to try doing an EP with us? And I said, uh, yeah, fuck it. You know, why not? <laughs> um, so uh, put, an EP, put an EP together with the guys from a band called Dive Dive, three of whom remain in the Sleeping Souls to this day. Um, and yeah, we, you know, we, um, uh, we, we put the EP out and I was still just playing kind of bar shows, squat shows, um you know real kind of low level stuff but the ep went over pretty well we sold quite a lot of copies um for, for a very small independent release um and it meant that both extra mile and indeed the and dive who i recorded with and they played on the record because they had their own studio set up they both sort of said well you know um why don't we do more of this if you've got more songs and i said well yes i do actually um and uh and so we put the album together um at tarrant my bass place house um in the summer of 2006 i think it was we recorded the album sleepers for the week and again you know it's it sort of everything in my career for a very long time was a case of word of mouth and slow build do you know what i mean it wasn't like i wasn't first of all there wasn't 
actually was a small label. I wasn't getting like huge marketing budgets and I wasn't getting loads of radio play or magazine coverage or anything like that. It was more a case of one person would hear it and like it and play it to their mate. Uh, and then, you know, or one person would come to a show and have fun and next time around they come with two friends or whatever. And it, and it was very, very organic for a long time, which is, is funny because at the time there were definitely moments when I found that really frustrating. Um, so, for example, there was a guy called Jamie T who used to play at Namuka with me as well. And Jamie's a lovely guy and super talented guy. And I think that his first two records are unassailably brilliant. Um, but, you know, he signed to Virgin and he got like a hundred grand marketing spend and suddenly he was number one and he was on the cover of wow. every magazine <laughs> and all the rest of it. And I remember me kind of going, oh, fuck. <laughs> so, I mean, like, why don't I have that? Um, and, but, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, I was, there was some jealousy involved in it. But, um, but at the same time, I, you know, um, I feel like my career has a certain degree of kind of bedrock to it because it had that very um, personal organic feel to it at the beginning. Do you know what I mean? I, I feel like Jamie's not actually the best example of this, but there are some acts where it's like, if you get into it because suddenly they're on every magazine cover and in that, on every radio station or the rest of it, you don't feel all that involved as a listener. Do you know what I mean? It's just sort of been shoved in your face. And, and therefore, if it kind of goes off the boil or goes away or whatever, then you sort of forget about it as quickly as you learned about it sometimes. Um, so there's definitely kind of more kind of foundation stability having done it the slow way, even though, as I say, there were times when that was really quite irritating. <laughs> I think there's something to say for uh, discovering an artist organically yourself. Yeah. Uh, um, I think it also resonates with you uh, a lot more than you would do, as you say, if, if you are subjected to an artist right particularly if there's overkill with it do you know what i mean sometimes it's just like oh my god i can't get away from this new band and it sort of it just feels like a bit of an imposition and like you know a lot of the time the way i hear about the way i get into new music is friends of mine telling me about it do you know what i mean because most of my friends are music nerds and i'll just suddenly get a text from somebody saying have you fucking listened to this and and you know um and sometimes i text my friend paul back because he has terrible testing music and i go i just did and it's awful um but um, but you know i mean it's like that's quite often how how these things these things come through you know it's so funny you say that because that's exactly how mine and matt's friendship works i'll send him music <laughs> he'll tell me it's terrible he'll send me music and i'll go uh, maybe but sometimes we do actually agree on things which is nice as well yeah, yeah. well no but it's great it's nice to have something to argue about one of my very best friends is a guy I and mean, the first our music taste is so weird because it's literally it's like this it's just a tiny bit off yeah. so even if we do like the same bands we have violently different opinions about what their best album is you know what i mean or yeah. and, and oh, it's just, I had that argument with my dad all the time about Green Day because Green Day right. are like my favourite band. Um, oh, well, actually, me and my dad agreed, but um, like my cousin and my brother are also really big Green Day fans and they've always said that like Dookie was the, their favourite Green Day and everyone says it's at the benchmark album, but I've always said that my favourite album is Nimrod. I love the album Nimrod. That's very interesting. I think, I, think, I mean, Dookie hit me when I was, at the, I was like uh, 14 when Dookie came out, so I was like target market for that shit, you know what I mean? But um, <laughs> it's probably got more, it's probably got deeper emotional resonance for me, but I think Nimrod is an overlooked classic, I will say that. Mm. So just uh, fast-forwarding through your discography, um, mm to uh, in England Keep My Bones. Um, yes. the, the song on there that is uh, the most interesting, I would say, is English Curse. Um, mm. And it sort of has that kind of that medieval um, a cappella sort of feel to it. It's, it's yeah. a wonderfully crafted song. I mean, we're just really intrigued to know how you came about writing that and, and sort of delivering that as a song. 
Um, well, so there was a number of things. First of all, I used the word folk around what I did a lot in the early days. Um, and that was kind of ideological as much as anything else in the sense that it was about, you know, music for everyone and, um, you know, music that was about kind of community rather than ego and all this sort of thing. Um, but, you know, from time to time, I run, against, run up against the actual folk scene, the trad folk scene, and there is an argument, which is a reasonably strong argument to be made that is, for a song to be a folk song, it has to be of unsure provenance, of traditional provenance, where there's no known writer and all this kind of thing. And I can I can see those arguments. Um, uh, and so, you know, around the time, because Inkin was my fourth record, I sort of thought that I'm, I might as well actually kind of learn more about real folk music, because my knowledge was not super high at that point it was more like i've got an acoustic guitar i'm a folk singer um <laughs> but like so i started listening to a lot more kind of trad english folk and going through stuff like uh, there's a guy called john bowden who's now um a friend who was in a band called bellowhead and he did a project called folk song a day he released 365 trad songs in a year which is incredible education in that style of music martin simpson martin carthy uh, ewan mccall um the whole carthy family i should say so th there's a lot of people who who do that kind of uh, traditional English music. Um, so I got into all of that, which meant I was interested in kind of modal stuff. A lot of the old proper kind of Cecil Sharp, Vaughan Williams collected folk music is a cappella because that was the way that it was generally the music of farmhands and this kind of thing. So I was kind of interested in those modes. I was interested in a cappella song. I also, incidentally, um, my friend Chris TT. I don't know if you know his music. He's hung up his boots a couple of years ago, sadly, but he, he was a folk singer and he had an acapella song called M1 Song and it was always this incredible showstopper when he sung it. Um, and uh, and I was a bit like, oh, I want one of those in my armory. So I was thinking about all of this and sort of came up with a little modal melody. And then, um, you know, I'm from Hampshire originally and uh, the story of um, the story of King William II being killed in the forest is, is widely known, but there's a, there is a local legend in, in the New Forest that his father, William the first like stole some land from it from uh, um, from a local guy who placed a curse on them that his firstborn son would die in retaliation and that attracted me just because it, you know I mean I don't really need to get into the like Sir Edmund Coke kind of like argument about the Saxon yoke and about Saxon versus Norman history and Jesus Christ um, <laughs> but, but like it appealed to me because it's there's a degree of kind of anti-authoritarianism to you know it's about the, the 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 authority the royal power taking away from the common people and then being paid back for that and just the whole thing all of that kind of appealed so i just started writing and, and got it down and my my moment of victory with that song that actually that sounds really <laughs> anyway, um, I sung that song at Cambridge Folk Festival, which is kind of Glastonbury for folk nerds. Um, and uh, there is a, there are there's a certain type of person who goes to Cambridge Folk. I promise you, with like they're like train spotters. They've got a notepad and they make notes about versions of trad songs, which is cool because I mean that is how that music exists and grows and all the rest of it is through different interpretations and versions. But um, one of them come up to me after I come off stage and ask for the provenance of English curse and like where I'd found the song and you know what its historical provenance was. And I was like, I fucking wrote it. Um, and they were really annoyed. So um, but I felt quite good. <laughs> okay, so not long after not long after you um, did England keep my bones, you actually uh, got the opportunity to support green green day yes um at wembley stadium and i was there i oh, was nice. there second second deck front row prime oh i viewing. recognize you yeah prime viewing no it was a uh, how was that experience like getting to tour with 
those guys and Joan Jett was there as well. Wasn't Joan she? Jett was there. who was lovely. Um, I mean, it was it was amazing. The guys. The first thing to say is that the American punk scene is a lot more kind of like um, familial and friendly than any equivalent that the British scene has ever had. So, like, I got to know Chuck Reagan from Hot Water Music because he was doing kind of solo folky acoustic stuff as well. And then within about six months, I'd met everyone, I'd, you know, Offspring, Green Day, NoFX, all the rest of it. Everyone knows everyone, everyone's friends with everyone in a really nice way. Um, so I think that somewhere in there is where the invite came from. But, you know, Billy Joe, who I've hung out with a few times, is a fan, apparently, which is a mad <laughs> sentence to say out loud. Um, <laughs> but yeah, they asked they asked us to, to open the shows and it was pretty career changing for me, you know? Um, certainly, like, the... They are definitely those two shows, Manchester and London, remain in like the top five biggest shows I've ever played in my life. Um, uh, I'm glad that the London one was second because that we got some of the nerves out of the way. The Manchester one, it was sort of terrifying playing to 60,000 people, you know, it's, <laughs> it's a lot of fucking people. Um, the one memory I do have, well, the one memory I do have from, from, the, um, from the Wembley show that was amazing. So we were first on, so generally speaking, your first on band sound checks last which means you don't necessarily have to do a line check where you run through all the instruments and check everything's plugged in the same place. But if you're being on the safe side, you do that anyway before you run on stage and pick up a guitar and go, and nothing happens. So we were in the backstage, which is fucking miles away from the stage at Wembley, and our guitar tech, Barbs, went out to check, do the line check, and there's 90,000 people in front of him, and they were there was a big inflatable ball that was getting knocked yeah. about the crowd. And it landed on the stage and he was quite nervous as well and busy putting out pedals and checking microphones plugged in and stuff. And he just went up and just knocked it off into the wings of the stage and 90,000 people booed him. <laughs> <for doing that. laughs> but he didn't immediately twig that that's why they were booing him. He just thought that they were a rough crowd. <laughs> so we're all sat in the dressing room being a bit like... And then it was like, so Bob's comes back in and goes like, oh, showtime's five minutes, we should walk up. And, I, and we're all like, how is it out there? And he's like, rough crowd. <laughs> like, he's just like, he's like, they booed me and I'm just a guitar tech. And we were like, oh no, this is going to be the hardest gig ever. But actually it went quite well. So, um, well, I mean, you can tell me about that. I don't really know. But oh, it, it, it was great. So I, I didn't find out about your music until you did the rock and roll EP. And mm. I was immediately hooked with, um, um, I still believe. I still believe. Yeah. 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 So I was immediately hooked. And from that, I went back and bought what you'd done today. And now I've, I've kept up with buying everything that you did. You did since. So when you came on stage and I saw that you were going and you're on stage and I was like, turning to the guys that I was with going, yeah, I got it. And everyone looked at me going, <laughs> <laughs> No, I was just, uh, and i was just like no he's the, i said this guy this guy's great and like okay. everyone well, everyone everyone that i then after that concert was just like yeah he's great i was just you need to go and check him out everyone that i've said take check frank turner out afterwards just likes frank turner now like my dad oh, okay. my dad's bought your music well you should give your dad a high five from me next time <laughs> if you're allowed to do that yeah you, like, you've yeah. actually met my dad he was at cambridge folk festival he got oh, a photo right, opportunity yeah. with you oh afterwards. very nice excellent <laughs> well, say, say hello from me say hello from me yeah, he mean, was the guy in the anorak writing the notes frank uh, <laughs> okay brilliant um no he wasn't I mean, I, I think one of the, one of the things about those kind of level of sports 
I've always sort of said that with with a couple of like really obvious exceptions, I'll, I'll open for anybody. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, I'd open for Lady Gaga and I'd open for Slayer. Because I think the point is, is that f- first of all, people are people and I don't want to be so up my own ass as to imagine that a certain type of person isn't going to like my music. But also it's a numbers game to a degree. Like if you play in front of 90,000 people at Wembley Stadium and you get 10% of the audience, that's still 9,000 people paying attention, you know, which is yeah. more than you ever play to ever kind of thing so it's it's worth doing you know so uh your your latest release is uh no man's land um which is a really sort of uh interesting uh look at um uh, women throughout history and how they've Mm. been perceived um just want to tell us a little bit about the the process of of writing an album such as this Mm. and what led you to to do this um, I guess, I mean, the the first thing was that like it's my, it's my eighth album and I've, I've done seven records in a row where, t- to simplify, but my sort of central topic of discussion in my lyrics was was myself. It was autobiography to a large degree. Do you know what I mean? I was sort of writing about my own feelings and experiences, and which is what most people do, and there's nothing wrong with it. But it just sort of occurred to me that it might be interesting to do something else for a bit um, and to try and uh, engage with other people's experience. I mean, it's something that writers like Springsteen do often and do well. Um, but not really something I'd ever tried to do before. I'm also the biggest history nerd you'll ever meet. Um, and uh, I sort of, I wanted to write songs about unknown historical characters. You know, I don't need to write a song about, you know, Rosa Parks because everybody knows who Rosa Parks is, you know what I mean? Whereas some of the people I chose to write, write about were slightly different. There wasn't a gendered angle on it at the beginning. It was more just trying to tell stories that I felt were undertold that would be interesting to share and to talk about. So I wrote a song about Ginny Bingham and Adora Hand was an early one, Sister Is That I Thought was another. Um, and I got about four or five songs into the record and realized that everybody I'd chosen to write about so far was a woman, which says obvious things about our historiography and about the way that we relate to the past um, and how that could be kind of, I think corrected is too strong a word, but at least rebalanced maybe a little bit, you know? So um, I sort of followed that to the end and and it was really, really fun. I mean, it sort of wasn't quite intended to be like, you know, uh, the the word that labels use is like frontline. It wasn't supposed to be like a, but here's my new record forever wah, kind of thing. It was like, this is a thing I want to do. And, and I'm really proud of it. You know, it feels very um, artistically pure might be a word i mean again going back to what we're saying about that original thing of picking up an acoustic guitar in the first place like nobody at the record label was stoked when i said i wanted to make a history album about female historical figures they were all just like oh that's nice um do you know what i mean and and it was just like well fuck it i want to do this i'm gonna do it and and i did and i'm proud that i did i think it's good um it's always nice, yeah. It's always nice to have songs that have have a story to them instead of just being about mm. something that's remedial. That, yeah, you know, and just and 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 it was really it was exactly what I thought it would be. It was both challenging and interesting to try and inhabit another viewpoint through the medium of songwriting. You know what I mean? And like, I found myself doing things, saying things to myself that I never had cause to say before. Like, you know, there was one moment where I was like, right, I need to get up to nineteen fifty seven by the end of verse two. And it was like, <laughs> That's a weird, that's a that's an odd thought process that's not really landed in my songwriting before, um, but it was cool. And then of course we did the podcast that went with it. That was that is an integral part of it to me, simply because to tell somebody's life story respectfully in three and a half minutes 
whilst it is obviously the task that I sort of set myself to a degree, it, it, you can't really do full justice to that, do you know what I mean? So I wanted to make sure that there was kind of a, a deep dive available to people if they were interested. And we got real historians on who knew way more about it than I did, um, and indeed told me that I was wrong uh, on occasion about some of the things oh. on the lyrics, which was like, <laughs> fuck. Um, uh, but, but, you know, got to be done. Um, but yeah, you know, it's, 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 it's a little project that I did that I'm very proud of. Yeah, it is really, it's a really great album, and um, there's some 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 blues coming through on, especially on the the first track, which uh, is really mm. nice to hear. Actually, um, I'm a bit of a blues fan, so Matt, so is Matt actually as well. So uh, it's really nice to hear that coming through on the on the first track. Um, but so, I mean, obviously touring is off at the moment. But when do you envisage that you'll be able to to tour with this album? Is it is it an album that you actually are going to um, tour? For? Yeah, we we did we did a uh, we did about four or five months on the road for this record last year. Um, uh, and in fact, one of the, well, it was a two part show. I actually did two sets of an evening, which I might add, I'm not going to do again because Jesus Christ, um, uh, it seemed like a brilliant idea in advance. It wasn't, um, uh, but I did, I did one set that was all stuff from the new No Man's Land record. And then one that was a kind of acoustic set and the acoustic set we've actually put out as a live record this year. It's live in Newcastle is out now. So, yeah. and it's very, it's very, very different from my usual live thing. And it's, I'm really proud of it because it's me and the singing souls kind of, I th hopefully demonstrating our kind of breadth as a musical unit, you know, it's a, it's a, just a, com it's a complete rearrangement of a lot of songs and, and a different uh, approach to the business of being on a stage. So we did that. I mean, in terms of what's happening right now, um, no one knows when live music is going to return. And I think that oh, I've got to be sort of slightly circumspect and polite when I say what I'm about to say. Um, but like, you know, there's a lot of people being rather kind of gung-ho about it at the minute in a way that I think is borderline unethical. I think putting shows on sale kind of before the end of the year or whatever is is morally dubious to me simply because there's no way that anyone can guarantee that's going to happen. I don't think there'll be any gigs this year. I, I obviously don't want that to be true, but, you know, that's how it feels to me. And obviously, and then the other thing is there's a lot of people talking about things like drive-in shows, and I completely and utterly respect the motivation and um, the drive for people to do that. Personally, I don't see how those are going to work as meaningful live experiences. Having said that, I might be wrong, and um, I'm planning on going to one to just sort of sound it out. But, um, you know, the thing that we've discovered during lockdown is that the business of gathering people together in in confined spaces, however you want to put it, isn't incidental to the live experience. It is the live experience, you know, and, and you, there isn't really a way of getting around that. Um, and like I say, I respect the people who are trying to come up with ways around that, but I, I think it's kind of impossible personally. And I think we just have to wait until we get to a point where it is safe and it is sensible for us to do what we used to do. So, okay, that kind of brings us on nicely to the next bit then, is, is what what have you done during COVID-19? And I, I've, I've seen you a couple of times run your like live sessions on, on mm. Facebook, and you've been doing that for a good course. Do you want to dip into yeah, that a little bit? That's, that's been the main sort of public thing I've been doing. And in fact, in fact, I wrapped it up last week. I think called Independent Venue Love was the name I came up with for it, which is not a brilliant name. Well, let's be honest with each other. Um, and I, I announced that and did it. And then a couple of weeks later, the Music Venue Trust, who I was in contact with and their friends of mine, and they, were, they, they launched their part of it. It was called Save Our Venues Campaign. And I was like, that's a better name for it. Um, uh, but anyway, I did, in the end, I did, I did 14 venue shows um, and I played my whole catalogue 
uh, front to back, all big rare so rarities, B sides, covers. Wow. I mean, name it. I even did a Disney set. I was on. about to say you yes. did a Disney. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so, and it was just you know. But the the point of it was fundraising, and um, the total raised for the fourteen different venues is just shy of two hundred grand, which I'm very proud of, um, and will hopefully make a real difference for those people. Uh, those venues in those areas um, and of course you know as we speak now last night the news came out about the um, government grant to the arts generally which I'm cautiously welcoming of I mean it very much depends on how it works in practice and how it breaks down but in theory that's good news for everybody um, but yeah so that was the main thing I was doing during lockdown was doing those shows in a public fashion I've also been um, I've always been kind of on the fringes of knowing about audio production, engineering and mixing. And I have been doing endless, 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 endless online courses and tutorials about that kind of shit. So if you really want to know how to work a compressor or a DSer, I am now your man to ask, um, <laughs> but, uh, but wasn't three four months ago or whatever. Um, yeah. So, I mean, but also, I mean, I'm, uh, I'm moving house because um, uh, my, uh financial outlook is not what it once was so there's that to take into consideration that kind of thing so it's, it's a difficult time to be somebody who makes a living playing live because um mm. i can't do that at the moment no sure thing um, so uh just just moving on to uh your, your latest project with uh, no effects so mm. it's dropped mm. really recently um so you've got there's two songs out at the moment is that correct one's falling yeah. in love and the other one oh. is a uh um, it's a cover of your song by No Effects called Thatcher Fuck the Kids. Yes, also my version of Bob is out there somewhere as well. Oh, right, okay. So I, I looked on Spotify this week and they're the two right. songs that I could find. Okay. Maybe right. I haven't looked hard enough. But, no, uh, no, it's fine. So there's, <laughs> there's three, three out of ten songs are out. Um, yeah, that is worth talking about. I mean, it is about the coolest thing that's ever happened in my career. I mean, No Effects have been one of my favourite bands for, uh, hold on, how old am I? Like, 24 years now you know i fucking love that band and have done for a long time um and i've been friends with mike for about 10 years um which in itself is kind of insane because holy shit being friends with fat mike but like um as you may well know in 2002 no effects and rancid did the cover split um the cover split was a was a big thing in the hardcore scene in the 80s and the 90s it was quite a common thing no effects and rancid doing one was like the biggest one anyone ever did um and i loved it it came out i got it 18 years ago when it came out and um if you told me 18 years ago that the next time no effects did a cover split it would be with me i would have shit myself essentially um you know it's an amazing thing i mean i love the band it's it's mind-blowing to me that mike is enough fan of my music to want to do the split and i think it's really creatively interesting as well mm. so is there any particular reason why you've chosen the songs that you have so far to to include on this album <laughs> yeah i mean so the the whole thing was recorded and mixed by about well in fact just before lockdown kicked in we finished off the mixes so um uh the choice of songs was interesting i mean I'm, I'm a big fan so i listen to everything you've got to pick songs that you like but you've also got to pick songs the way you feel like you can add something you know and bring something new to the table there's no point in doing a straight cover i must say i did briefly toy with the idea of doing a cover of the decline just because fuck it, um, which is their 18 minute long masterpiece. But, um, just because it would have been pretty balls out, but I decided that I couldn't be bothered. Um, but, you know, just trying to find songs where you do something that's different to what the original does, both arrangement wise and sonically, but in some cases, like emotionally as well, you know. Um, uh, and it, it was really fun. And it, I think that 
arrangement is an art form that is separate from songwriting, you know? Um, and in fact, that live in Newcastle record I was just talking about is an example of me rearranging my own songs in this way. So I was kind of in that headspace anyway when this project came up. Um, but it was really, really fun. It was like, here's a really good song. How would you do it differently? Um, and yeah, it's I'm, I'm very pleased with how it came out. Well, when is it due to be released in full? Um, at the end of this month, as far as I'm aware, but I am literally the worst person to ask about release dates and stuff like that because I never know. <laughs> well, I certainly look forward to, uh, to its uh, full release. Thank you. And anyone that's interested, you can check the tracks out that are releasing on Spotify in the meantime. Yes. And in fact, well, there's also there's two music videos. I did one for NoFX's version of my song, if you see what I mean. Right. And they did one for my version of their song, <laughs> um, which are a lot of fun. Um, I think I think they bested me on the music videos, I will say that. That one's ridiculous, but a lot of fun. Okay, so we're, we're coming towards the end of end of the podcast now. So something we've been asking someone uh, on the podcast every week is, if you were going to pick your perfect three-man band, who would be in it? So drums, bass, lead guitar, vocals. Right, and am I in this band as well? Uh, you can put yourself in the band if you want. Oh, right. oh, but I don't have to be in the band. You don't, don't have, have to be. be in the that's band. good. That's better. That's better. That's. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so one of the things to say about this is that I think that there are some perfect bands already that exist. I think Fugazi are essentially a perfect band, um, and I think that uh, the band, as in Robbie Robertson and Leon Helm, people were perfect. Although there was rather more than three of them. Um, uh, I mean. You know, it's difficult to argue with Dave Grohl as a drummer, to be blunt. Do you know what I mean? He's pretty sort of like... He's been, yes. pretty, he's been pretty popular amongst our answers so far. Yeah, but. it's sort of difficult to avoid. Um, actually, well, hold on. I'm going to slightly dodge the question and say that there was one of the one of my favourite... Um, going back to what we were talking about, about your friends letting you know about music and all that kind of thing. So I've been a big fan of the Lemonheads for years. I don't know if you know the Lemonheads. I, uh, Evan Adams is an incredible songwriter. And um, he, the Lemonheads is basically him with other people. Do you know what I mean? There's just a slightly different lineup in every record. And about 15 years ago, they did a self-titled record that was Evan Dando on vocals and guitar, Bill Stevenson from Descendants and Black Flag on drums, Carl Alvarez from Descendants on bass, and um, Jay Maskus from Dinosaur Jr. on lead guitar. And like when that and lineup got announced, like a friend of mine texted me and said, "Put put some fucking like waterproof underwear on because I've got something to tell you. Like your favorite songwriters just made a record with your favorite rhythm section and with one of your favorite guitar players of all time. So I might have to pick that. Okay, <laughs> that's a, that's a- Good answers, any? <laughs> really I really like. I really like the Descendants as well. Descendants mm. are a quality yeah. band. They're an excellent, excellent band. Yeah. Perfect. Well, uh, Frank, that's uh, that's the end of our podcast today. Just want to thank you so much again for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure and an honour speaking to you. Um, I know that me and Matt have been big fans of your music for a, for a long time. So to speak to you today has been fantastic. I've had a lovely time. Thank you very much for having me. Um, and I hope you guys are staying sane and safe and healthy and all the rest of it. What a weird time to be alive. I know. I know. And, and same, same to you, Frank. And, and we hope that we'll speak to you again very soon. I hope that we can do it in person somewhere down the road. That'd yeah, be nice. That, that would be nice. That'd be great. Um, so, yeah. So thank you to everyone else for, for listening at home. Um, we really do appreciate you, uh, you listening to us. And uh, please check us out on Facebook, uh, 
Twitter, Instagram. Uh, check out our YouTube page as well. Um, we put a video version of all of our podcasts up on there so you can see us in the flesh because that's nice as well, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> or, or not. <laughs> um, I mean, personal preference. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks very much, guys. It's been fun. Yes, thank you. If you're heading down to Camden Town, be sure to raise a toast to the patron saint of the waifs and strays, to Ginny Bingham's ghost. Once she was a fresh-faced lass from Kentish Town she came Her people they were peddlers, Ginny Bingham was her name With her husband Gypsy George at Camden Coach House they did keep Till they hung him by his neck from Tyburn Tree for stealing sheep It broke her heart to lose her love when she was just a child So a man named Darby took the hand of Ginny Meek and Mild He was a drinker, not a thinker, daily brought his wife to tears Till one Camden winter morning Darby simply disappeared you're heading down to Camden Town Be sure to raise a toast To the patron saint of the waste and strays Ginny Bingham's ghost She earned her reputation On those bitter Camden streets If you'd tarry with the Bingham girl You'd hold your manhood cheap But even so the miser picture Was the third man on her lips Till one night they checked her oven Found him burned up to a crisp They tried her for his murder Thought they'd finally cooked her goose But even when the next man died Ginny somehow slipped the noose He was a fugitive from justice For love she took him in But he beat her once too often And the poison did him in If you're heading down to Camden Town Be sure to raise a toast To the painter saying that the waste was strays To Ginny Bingham's ghost Standing, it's now called the underworld, and it still offers sanctuary for all broken boys and girls.